Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the call in nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday, 3rd of July. It is currently 10.6 degrees and it's going to be a top of 14 and partly cloudy. It can only get better. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say the sun is kind of warm if Mm. you can get out of the wind when it's up. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. (laughs) It sounds promising. (laughs) So, yes, very well. Mm. Mm. Three out of four today. It's, um, that's high. It's, it's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> Did you mean that Ayana's not here or that's your personal ranking of how you're feeling? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, both. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, just, I actually wasn't sure. So Ayan is also not joining us. You are here with George, Anya and Lauren. Um, Ayan is still at work for mm. the next, like, six weeks. Yeah. Yep. A long absence, unfortunately. Mm. And we miss her very much. Yeah. Mm. But so the show must go on. Yeah. must. <laughs> and speaking of show... What have we got today? Today is going to be huge. Mm. It's always huge, but particularly huge today. Mm. We have so many live studio guests. I'm so pumped. (laughs) I'm glad I brushed my hair. (laughs) Who's up first? So um, we have Julia Wallace from Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project. And I do want to make a little disclosure here. Anya and I are also both members of the Rights Advocacy Project, Mm. which is not why Jules is coming in. She's here to talk about um, a fantastic new report called States of Refuge that she's researched and written um, with her team. But so she'll be joining us first up. Awesome. And so then, excited to hear about that. Uh, it sounds incredible. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually, I think I might actually try and read it. Do you think for someone who doesn't have any legal knowledge, it's achievable? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. It's, um, they've written it really well. It's an analysis of state and territory policy and law around the provision of education, housing and healthcare for asylum seekers and refugees. Mm. Um, but they've written it, look, some of it's quite technical, but there's good explainers and a little mm-hmm. glossary and stuff. So Sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. might give that it's a must go. read for everyone. Yeah, really. cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and next up, I'll be talking with Isabel Yates, who's actually a former student of mine. She's got a performance that will be coming out next week. It's called Insanity, which is written, perform, uh, directed and will be performing, and it's about millennial dating and mm. that with sort of feminism and other political issues. Oh, so yes. I think it's going to be I'm very already. interesting. Mm. Um, and then we'll be joined by Isabel Morphy-Walsh, who is the Senior Quarry Programs Officer at Museums Victoria, because Museums Vic have heaps and heaps of NADOC week programming. So starting this week, they've got a Victorian focus and then it um, expands to national next week. Um, And it's on the theme of Because of Her We Can. And they're looking at the Aboriginal women um, and their legacies who have helped shape this state. So I'm really Mm. excited to have Isabel join us. It's such a great theme as well. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important to centre black women in this 
Yeah. There's a few events in the in this week that we'll mention during community announcements mm. related to NADOC. After that, I'll be speaking with Kate Ford, who's the general, general manager of Queer Space. So that's for a regular monthly slot where we talk about um, Queer Space, which is a health and wellbeing service for LGBTIQ plus people. And t- today we'll be talking about the postal survey and how that's impacted queer communities seven months on. Mm. Mm. And finally, I'll be talking to Kelly Felton from JIRA, which um, was uh, formerly known as the Family Violence Prevention Legal Service, about, well, their work um, and also about um, the need for culturally appropriate services in the family violence space. Mm. Mm. Sounds great. Massive show. Shall we <laughs> kick it off with Ms. Georgie's news headlines? Yes, let's do it. Okay. okay. Pre-ballot polls suggest that leftist Andres Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO, will be elected as Mexico's next president, defeating unpopular leader Peña Nieto from the PRI. Despite promising to halve Mexico's murder rate when Nieto first came into office six years ago, this year is set to be one of the country's most violent years in modern history. There have been more than 13,000 homicides already in 2018, and also 130 politicians have been murdered since last September when the election campaign began. Mexico sits in 135th place in the Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. Promising to tackle corruption has been a cornerstone of AMLO's campaign, and his victory in this election has been linked to Trump and the racist border control discourse that has followed his presidency. Taken from a recent article in The New Yorker and in response to where he will get the money from to fund his election promises, he has said that there is money, what there is is corruption and we're going to stop it. He believes that by addressing official corruption, Mexico could save 10% of its national budget. So a lot of big promises coming from AMLO. There's a fantastic, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, there's a really great uh, long-form article in The New Yorker that goes into a lot of detail into his life. and I'll pop that up on the Facebook page. Yeah, it's a super interesting read, particularly Mm -hmm. because we don't get a lot of detailed analysis about Mexican politics. So this is a really valuable read, yeah. A freedom of information claim has found that the Australian government's legal fight with tobacco giant Philip Morris over plain packaging laws has cost the taxpayer nearly $40 million. The claim was lodged by former Senator Nick Xenophon and former staffer Rex Patrick. Philip Morris used a clause in the 1993 Hong Kong-Australia trade deal to sue the Australian government. Similar clauses are contained in the new TPP trade deal, which is currently under a Senate inquiry examination. Mm. So an important thing to follow and something I don't think, you know, as like in the public, we don't have a lot of knowledge about these trade Mm. agreements. No, the TPP is massive. And I think it sort of seemed like it was going away, so we've all kind of... Well, I can't speak for every single listener, sorry if you haven't, but we've all kind of stopped paying attention. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. We should. Do, I would love to do an interview and with someone who has specific knowledge about this. If you're listening and you yeah. have specific yes, knowledge. Yes, please get in touch. Yeah. Um, Myanmar is proceeding to take back Rohingya refugees who fled to Bangladesh in the last year in the face of military persecution and what the UN has described as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. They have set up reception centres and a temporary camp on the border in the Rakhine State for the arrivals. However, the International Committee of the Red Cross has stated that Myanmar is not ready for the repatriation of the 700,000 Rohingya refugees. The Guardian has quoted Red Cross President Peter Mora, who has stated that there is still a lot of work to do to ensure that it is safe and a realistic possibility for the Rohingya to return. A Sky News producer has been suspended over a derogatory on-screen tagline about Sarah Hansen-Young during a Sunday morning political commentary program. 
The tagline quoted David Leinhelm, who appeared on the show stating that the Green Senator is known for liking men. The rumours about her in Parliament are well known. The interview with Leinhelm came in response to insults he made at the Senate in the Senate towards Hanson Young during a debate about women and violence. Specifically, it was a division on a motion to arm women with tasers to combat <laughs> violence. Leinhelm told Hanson Young to stop shagging men, and when she confronted him, he told her to <clears throat> F off. <laughs> Leinhelm has refused to apologise for the comment. He's a disgusting <sighs> This is our government. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, both, like, the whole um, motion about arming women with tasers, mm, mm. that in and of itself is concerning, and then yeah. the conversation that followed that. Mm. Yeah, it's really, um, there's that concerning underbelly of this um, this outrage about violence against women that is the gun lobby in Australia using it as some kind of handhold to get, like, to claw their way back mm. into the public. No, really, there's been heaps of um, discussion about whether or not we should be relaxing gun imports so that women can arm themselves. And That's the solution. This is not the time. Just <laughs> have a, a seat. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> Guns, everybody. <laughs> We're going to be so safe. And taser, like, what? Tasers. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind a taser. That'd be yeah, kind of cool. But quite frankly, what's a taser going <laughs> to, to do if you're, if you're facing forms of violence in your workplace when you're in the Senate. Like, how mm. how are they not... Anyway. Yeah. Australian government. Yeah. <laughs> and did you see the news about the, the radio show host who made that very disgusting comment about... Look, I don't know enough about AFL to name names. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Barry Hall. That's right. Yes. Yeah. White Line Fever. That's his name. I know. Mm. I Like, I can visualise his face. I just don't. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't... Yeah. That was a horrible... Horrible. Like, don't look it up. Like, it's absolutely disgusting. Okay. But um, it was horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. So, for, yeah, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware he made a very derogatory comment about um, another uh, a St. Kilda football player's partner who was having a baby. Mm. Um, but he's been either suspended he or. He was suspended. Yeah. But instantly, like, yeah, straight away. Yeah. Yeah. But which is good to you see. You know, people were saying that there were other people employed in the same program. I think, mm. who are known abusers and yeah. they still have a job there. Well, that's the that's the guy whose partner was right. being spoken about. He was involved with the Milne, um, like the sexual right. assault. Yes. Well, it's it's been a great week so far for yeah. you. Um, AFL. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, not to blame sport. But no. <laughs> but... Um, so following on from that, there is a couple of things that I just wanted to highlight from a, um, I guess, an anti-fascist legal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people about this because there's heaps of laws that have just been passed or have been proposed that are really, really concerning, um, but um, they don't seem to have really taken the public, but like uh, public concern, I guess. Um, sorry, just one sec. Um, and so I guess there's this idea that fascism kind of looks like, you know, Hitler's armies marching or the tanks rolling down the street or um, like Stalin's gulags or whatever. Um, and it can definitely be all of those things. But um, it can also obviously be a government who says that they're doing things to keep you safe, like increasing their ability to listen to your conversations and track your actions, um, cutting off the ability of independent media to do their job and protect their sources, such as threatening journalists with prison or arresting mm-hmm. them or declaring war on the ABC. Um, it can be things like changing laws to say that they can hold people for longer and longer without charge or for younger and younger, um, at younger and younger ages. 
um, criminalizing protest or interference with government interests, um, running smear campaigns about their en- enemies like Gillian Triggs, um, and it can be fostering fear and mistrust between people and communities through things like demonizing refugees, creating the myth of African gangs, bringing back fears of Chinese communism, you know, all of this stuff that we're seeing. So um, I think that this is really concerning. And so I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that have happened, like I said, in the last two weeks. Um, firstly, the federal government's foreign interference and espionage bills passed parliament at the end of last week, with the ALP eventually throwing their support behind them after making a few small amendments. Oh, my um, God. So concerning. They exempted, I think, charities and arts organisations. Mm. Um, but So we had Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth on the program a couple of weeks ago talking about these laws in much more detail than we have time for here. So you can listen back on the 3CR website. But just a bit of a recap. Um, a few key things have changed since these laws were passed. And so... This is um, from a Guardian article, um, GetUp, the uh, social justice uh, campaigning organisation, um, got some legal advice that said that offences under the term sabotage could cover a wide range of protest activities because the damage to public infrastructure element includes merely limiting or preventing access to public infrastructure. So what that's saying is, um, for example, a person who intentionally blockaded the entry to a coal mine Um, with the ultimate intention of ending the sale of coal by Australia to another country could be charged with a criminal offence. And their legal advice suggested that the significant penalties of up to 20 years prison could apply to actions like that. Um, And they've said that that is likely to have a chilling effect on protest activity. So um, things like blockading farms to stop the sale of like live export, Mm. um, anything like that. So these espionage offences... Um, appear broad enough to capture reputational damage and loss of confidence in an Australian government. So Mm. this can include things like, as The Guardian's reported, publishing material about refugee policies, climate change policies, economic and political conditions, um, because all of these have the potential to impact on Australia's political, military or economic relationships with other countries. Um, And so this great lawyer, Kate Eastman, who's a um, senior counsel, has Um, said that this could include things like criticising Australia's human rights record Mm. in public um, or its um, major projects such as the Adani coal mine. So Mm. these could all become criminal acts under the new laws. Um, So now I've really set the tone. The second thing I want to highlight um, is a proposal put forward by Christian Porter, who is our Federal Attorney General, um, and his proposal is to relax the rules around when the military can be called upon in the event of domestic incidents. So... Notable um, from my reading of this was that he wants to be able to more easily involve the military in situations of quote-unquote riot and Mm -hmm. terror attacks. So in terms of calling the military in for terror attacks at the moment, they can be called when local forces are unable to deal with the matter at hand. So um, that's for things that the military has specific expertise in, such as if biochemical weapons Mm -hmm. were deployed, the military are trained in that, whereas local and state police are not. Mm -hmm. So then they can be called on. But Mr Porter wants to lower the threshold to give it much more grey area and more discretion um, as to when the ADF can be involved in a domestic incident. So discretion, always bad. Um, Also, um, I guess the riot aspect is what's particularly concerning. Um, Riot is undefined, Mm -hmm. can mean many things. Victoria Police called the protests in Flemington against Milo Yiannopoulos last year riots. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about um, communities coming out and standing in front of their homes while fascists are violent and aggressive towards them. 
imagine the military being called into that situation. Mm. So given that there are already massive, massive issues that we know about, systemic issues around racism and a lack of accountability for breaches of conduct within the police force and the ADF, um, it's really concerning that we could soon see heavily armed and combat trained soldiers getting involved with internal domestic issues. Mm. Um, and even like I even think that's the case in um, in terms of terror attacks, like after the Burke, the Elizabeth Street mm. incident, there were heaps of photos circulating the Internet um, of a person of colour who people automatically assumed were, was involved and there was like this manhunt on for him and he wasn't involved in the end. But mm. just this kind of, it just makes me really, really nervous. Um, mm. And the third thing that I wanted to highlight and then I'll be done with this little rant is that in New South Wales, new laws relating to the management of Crown lands came into effect on the 1st of July. Um, these laws have further restricted the ability of people in New South Wales to protest and demonstrate on Crown land, and they've increased the penalties that apply for doing so. So among the list of things that people will now be prohibited from doing are taking part in any gathering, meeting or assembly, except at cemeteries. Um, the new laws also give police, local council officials, uh, officials and state government employees the power to tell people to refrain from taking part in these gatherings, meetings or assemblies or protests or demonstrations. So that is the state of our country it's at chilling. the moment. Yeah. It is chilling. It's been a really awful couple of weeks and it's really hard to, um, I mean, I don't want to sound like a yeah, ASIO if you're listening, but um, <laughs> it's really hard to to kind of grab people's attention at the moment yeah. because there is so much going on, but these laws are passing and we're not seeing the full effect today or tomorrow, but mm. we've just seen Witness K arrested and we're seeing mm. these things happening that are... Like, this is what fascism looks like. Mm-hmm. And how soon before we're not allowed to speak out anymore? Mm-hmm. How yeah. soon before we can't do what we're doing? It's all cloaked in this um, this idea of national security and mm. making, making the world a safer place for people. Mm. And the fact that national security itself is undefined and courts can't challenge it and nobody can actually yeah. interrogate what that means yes. is... How do you want the government making decisions yeah. in your name when you can't And also query national it? security for a particular group of people. Yes, yes. That that is ridiculous. Mm. Look at these goosebumps. Yeah. Yes. It we sounds... definitely aren't talking about Aboriginal people here no. or refugees or women, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. Like women are not secure in this country. Mm. Yeah. You can gather in cemeteries though. Yeah. Right? Which is such an odd <laughs> but you know what? Let's start protesting in cemeteries. In cem- oh that's yeah. awful. That's awful. Well, sorry. Yeah, and it sounds yeah incredibly all-encompassing. There's just so many mm, yeah. different elements in terms of our rights being sort of stripped back, um, and it's so important to be aware of. And this is not, you know, this is not democratic at all. No. If we if we have to be afraid uh, that if we protest, we could, you know, go to prison for 20 years. I mean, that just sounds ridiculous. And does that also include um, international? Forums. I'm, yeah, I'm thinking like UNHCR. So, like, if you, yeah. um, if your actions, so if, for example, if you went to Geneva and you spoke mm. at the UN, mm. um, and it fell under that embarrassing Australia mm. or you know um, messing with its interests kind of thing, it mm. would count. Like what's happening right now. Yeah, like with the Human Rights Law yeah. Centre in Geneva, or yeah. Wow. Yeah, is all I can say. Um, Can I lift our spirits? Yeah, please, please, let's go to the song. (laughs) Um, So this is a track by an artist called Deline Briscoe. She's a Yolanji woman. This album of hers, it's called Wawu. It's just come out at the start of this month. And this 
song is called Heartbeat. Heartbeat, your heartbeat is the rhythm that you feel from the beginning. Yes, your heartbeat's in sync with the land that you come from. I have been waiting for so long for you to come back home. My trees felt you breathe in the sound of your heartbeat. You gotta remember, Nine Ops is a special day for us, fellas. Reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy night off. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie. That track we just heard was a great song from her debut album. Her name's Delene Briscoe. She's a Yolanji woman. The song was called Heartbeat. And check out the album. I think there's a few good tracks on there. I'm excited to give oh, it a proper really. listen. And you should play more songs yes. on this video because I really like that. So now we are joined live in the studio, What Fun, the first of three live guests today, by Julia Wallace, who, as I mentioned before, is from the Rights Advocacy Project. And again, full disclosure, Anya and I are also part of the Rights Advocacy Project. So, um, But <laughs> Jules is here today uh, because she is one of the researchers and authors of the new report, States of Refuge, which is very exciting, and I will post a link to it on our Tuesday Brekkie Facebook page. So, Jules, welcome. Good morning. <laughs> So talk to us about this awesome report, States of Refuge. What is it all about? Um, so for a long time, the conversation in Australia about people seeking asylum and refugees has focused on the federal government, who have continued to enact really harsh policies. Um, there's been less attention on the role of states and territories, who have a crucial role in making sure um, members of our community get the right support. Um, so States of Refuge looks at how each Australian state and territory stacks up when it comes to making sure some of the most vulnerable members of our community, um, those who are seeking asylum and refugees, um, get access to the things that they need to build their lives, so access to healthcare, a decent education and a roof over their head. Amazing. And so um, how did you go about working out what each, each state and territory, like that just sounds like a massive job. Yeah, it was a pretty big undertaking. <laughs> um, it was uh, quite a, a long process um, of, you know, identifying the relevant areas, um, going through legislation and then behind that regulations and then policy and then a lot of detailed analysis requests for information, freedom of information requests, analysis of all of that. Um, and then speaking to some people, if you have a look at the report, you'll see we've got case studies of people mm. we've spoken to who've experienced these systems as well. Um, so it was yeah, quite a large undertaking and about a year's worth of, of work. Mm. And so what, um, what did you find in the end? What sort of results are we seeing? 
Um, so there are two main areas of concern that we identified. One is to do with the complexity and confusion um, in the area. So as I've said, a lot of these rules are found in policy, in regulations. Um, a lot of those policies and regulations are buried at the back of government websites. They might not be up to date. Um, they might not even exist. Mm. Um, and that makes it really, really difficult for people and people who are seeking asylum and refugees to know what their rights are, mm. um, to know what services they have access to. It also makes it hard for service providers to know what's going on. Um, so confusion and complexity is one problem. The other main um, problem that en encompasses a, a few smaller issues um, is to do with barriers to access. So that's excluding people who should be able to access services from accessing them. Um, so if you take, for example, I'm, you know, in Australia, there are uh, many refugees who have been granted protection, so the government has said um, you are entitled to stay here, who remain on temporary protection um, visas or temporary visas for for years, and that's through no fault of their own. own. That's to do with, you know, the federal government's um, policies and delays to do with their, their processing. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the rules around access to services require people to be citizens or permanent residents. And so then what you're doing is you're excluding that whole group of people um, who... Uh, who are on temporary visas but should be entitled to get, who are, yet should be able to get um, access to those really, really important mm. services that they need to build their lives. Mm. Gosh, that's, um, there's so many layers to that. Um, and it sounds like you did need the full year to, <laughs> to really wade through it all. So, so this is obviously crucially important for people who live here and need, um, need to have access to those services. Um, what are you hoping um let me rephrase that so mm, sorry i'm getting um, i'm getting a bit ahead of myself here i think so was it difficult to get all of this information in terms of your foiing and your digging around and all of that sort of thing now that you've um now that you've got it all what can you say about that process yeah so it was quite a protracted process. Um, it took a lot of time, <laughs> particularly making those those freedom of information requests. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time we were getting really important information through freedom of information that wasn't available on government websites So, f or even just in making direct requests to the government um, and asking them for further information. Um, so, for example, in Western Australia, there's a general rule that school students won't be charged to attend school. Mm. Um, and it appears that asylum seeker children um, would be required to pay. However, it was only when we contacted the department directly that we were able to find out that in practice, um, you know, Western Australian, the Western Australian Education Department, um, you know, under some of the relevant regulation has set that fee to a dollar. Um, and, yeah, and so so that is providing access, and that's a yeah. fantastic thing that the department is doing. But it's just so hard to find mm. out that information, which is a real pro problem for people again knowing what they're entitled to access and being able to access it. Yeah, and potentially even I mean I know I think everybody in this room has had to deal with Centrelink at some point or another, or Medicare or any of those massive, massive bureaucratic departments. And from one person to the next, people change the story and, and like are not quite sure of the policy and all that sort of thing. And I can imagine in these areas where there's so much um, 
I'm trying to think of the word without defaming the government. But <laughs> That's hard <to laughs> every do. week, every week it comes to this. But but so much grey area and so much miscommunication and misdirection and all that sort of thing. You can imagine that people trying to find their rights by talking to a government, a government service provider may not actually get the full story either. Like yeah. if you're, yeah, you're having to dig around. That's just crazy. Yeah, and that comes back to just the fundamental point that the, this information should be publicly available, it should be easy to read, easy to access, um, it just should be there. Mm. And, you know, you shouldn't have to dig through, um, you know, the, either the government website or, you know, make those really quite often time-consuming and challenging and, I, like you say, sometimes inconsistent in their result steps. Mm. And some of the FOIs... Um, were quite expensive as well. Like you, yeah, you would need money to do yeah, this. Yeah, that's mm. exactly right. Yeah. So how could, or how do you recommend that state and territory governments go about fixing this? What's your proposal? Yeah, so the aim here is to provide access to people who are, who should be able to build their lives and to live in state stability and security. And so in doing that, um, there are two main things that we recommend, and they're basically addressing the problems that I discussed, and so that's the one that we've, we've spoken about, so making sure that these rules are clearly laid out, that people can access them, um, and they're not wading through that sort of really difficult, sometimes challenging um, bureaucracy. Um, the second point there is removing barriers. So that means, you know, it might mean taking away citizenship and permanent residency requirements in, in certain contexts, or it might mean carving out particular exceptions for, um, you know, refugees who are on temporary visas, um, you know, to make sure that they can access the services that they need. Mm. Sounds very straightforward. I can't imagine why any state or territory government would not take you up on this. Um, and they should be listening. I saw you got some mentions in other state papers yesterday, so hopefully they're going to pay attention. And what's your forward plan with the report? Are you planning on strong-arming anybody into doing anything? Or <laughs> so, so we have a, um, a consultation coming up on the 12th of July where we've invited um, heads of department um, from all the states and territories and all the relevant departments to come in and have a chat to us about what our report is about because I think a lot of these things, you know, I, I, I really believe if they, they turn, if they turn their minds to them um, that there, there will be the will there to make these, you know, really important and, like you say, not that difficult changes mm. to make. Um, so it's really just about engaging the people who, get to, who are making the decisions in a conversation about it and giving them some, um, you know, advice on how best to make sure that everybody in their state and territory gets access to the services that they need. Mm. Sounds so easy. Well, good luck with it. I hope it works. And thank you for joining us this morning. That was Julia Wallace from Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project, and you are listening to 3CR Tuesday Brekkie. And womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. 
and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Do you want to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? AIMS Australia is a leading education provider offering government-funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. AIMS Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. AIMS Australia is a 3CR supporter. We're going to hear, uh, and we're back at Tuesday Breakfast. I'm going to play another song now. It's by Georgia and Muldrow, and it's called Great Blacks. Our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. On, oh, my mic wasn't on. Classic. <laughs> A classic move. <laughs> Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast, where we are exceptionally organised and professional and yes. also very good looking. Um, <laughs> we are here with Isabel. Oh, no. Now, I'm going to get confused because we have two Isabel guests yeah, today. Yeah, back to back. Yes, it's wild. We're here with Isabel Yates and George. Please. Yes. Take it from here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Isabel is here to talk about her new performance called Insanity. It is. (laughs) But before we jump into that, I just want to hear from you about what got you... So you've studied musical theatre and acting. Mm -hmm. What got you into this field? Um, So I think I sort of discovered it in high school, really. It was a one of the better extracurricular activities at my reasonably small high school. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of cool, which is unusual, I think, like, all of the cool kids did the musical. Really? Yeah, which never, never happens. So, um, yeah, so I got into it at high school and then kind of did the, you know, what you're meant to do and went to university after high school and did one year at uni and decided that was not for me at that time and went and studied musical theatre full-time for 12 months and then I had the bug and went and studied acting. I went and studied in New York, um, Melbourne, all over the place, London. Wow. So, yeah, so I really sort of committed and chased the, I guess, the high that you get from yeah. from being on stage, yeah. And is this your first work? Yes. You so this is my first 
full solo show. So I've done stuff as part of my course or shows at uni and things like that. But this is the first, yeah, solo project, which is exciting and nerve wracking and all of those things. Um, but it's an idea that's been in the back of my mind for years. Um, and it's so topical. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to Lauren before. Don't, because I walked in this morning and was like, you will never guess what happened on Tinder. (laughs) Sorry to uh, not all men and old men listening. Oh God. Yeah. George was like, you wait. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us about the show. So yes, so the show is called Insanity, which is not specifically directed at me being insane, which I think is often something, you know, women dating like, oh, she was crazy. Yeah. Um so the title came from Einstein's definition, which is doing the same thing over and over again and <laughs> yes. expecting a different result. <laughs> and I think that that is Tinder. Yeah. Because you do sort of do that thing where you know There's conflicting information in any other scenario apart from dating. If you were doing the same thing over and over again and it wasn't working, you would change your tactic. But all of your loved ones would be like, no, 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 it's them. You don't change anything. You're perfect. You're like, well, yes, but also it's not working. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought sort of thought that was a funny. That's a great title. Yeah. I really like that a lot. Um, And so I'm just interested to hear... What influenced you to make the work? I mean, have you had a lot of these experiences with where it's the same thing, you know, going over um, and over again? Yeah, I think just sort of getting bogged down, I guess, by, like, Tinder is weird. Tinder is such a weird platform on which to date. You, it's basically a mobile phone game. And yeah. then you meet them <laughs> that's, that's in real life. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's quite, it's quite odd. So I think sort of... I will go through phases where I'll have like four or five dates a week and treat it like, you know, auditioning. <laughs> Just yeah. sort of feel like it's a numbers game. And then you <laughs> Wow, that's a lot. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you're like, oh, they're all just strangers. Like they are all total strangers that you don't know and it's complete random luck as to whether or not you get there and get on or get there and have a weird slightly awkward conversation with a stranger for two hours and then go home yeah why did I why did I do that and not hang out with someone who I know and like Mm. (laughs) so yeah so there were lots of sort of those stories but also I've just had some um very interesting, unique dating experience. Okay. <laughs> very diplomatic. Yeah, exactly. Very different ones. So I just thought I had too much material to not write a show. Yeah. And it's always good to write about something that's really personal, hey, that you have yeah. had a lot of experience in. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, with slight artistic license, everything in the show is true. <laughs> so... <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a sort of a broader question. Do you think that... Uh, these dating apps are changing dating culture for everybody? Definitely. And is this a positive thing? Like, how, how do you see it? I think it's um, I think it's not yet a positive thing. I think maybe one day we'll learn how to use them better. And But I think at the moment they've kind of taken over. And so um, I know that for me, like, my attitude now when I go out for a night with friends is, you're just completely shut off to if anyone hits on you it's like no i'm i'm with my friends Let's leave go me alone to the please yeah exactly <laughs> but then you go home and you'll be like oh i hope he's on tinder 
And it's so, it's so weird. We've completely segregated real life and dating, even though ideally dating should happen in real life. Yeah. Because you are going to have to spend time with them in real life. So yeah, so, so I don't strange. think it's positive yet. Yeah. And let, let's talk about the sort of the political element mm. or the feminist element. Like, is that a big part of the performance and how you see this issue? If yeah. you are a feminist, you know, I am definitely a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> I am always a feminist. Um, yeah, so I think the, it's it's really hard. It's a fine line to walk when you're doing comedy and trying to also, you know, push your little social activism agenda. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think that any kind of social activism, feminism or otherwise, um, can get really exhausting and it's important to find a way that you can not get exhausted and burnt out and still kind of follow that path. Um, and for me, comedy is a really beautiful avenue in which to do that because I think if you can make people laugh first, then they're more likely to listen. Someone has a, a much better worded quote that says exactly that. I can't yeah. remember who it is. Yeah, I think you got it spot on. <laughs> and so does that mean that you've had dating experiences where your feminism have has kind of become a little bit of a tension with yeah definitely um i mean it i now have it in my tinder profile which is um debated amongst a lot of my friends i think that's clever you may just be straight Straight up up. weed them out from the gecko yeah like if they're gonna not match me because it says feminist they're not a person i want to date yeah it's really easy amen sister (laughs) So, yeah, but I have lots of friends who are like, oh, you know, but you don't want to give away everything too early. I'm like, I'm not giving anything away. I'm telling them that this is important to me. What kind of man do you want to attract that doesn't believe in feminism? Right. <laughs> like, exactly. <fine>. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Delete. Left. Um, yeah, and I, I've definitely been on dates where, for whatever reason, I don't know, they haven't looked at the fact that I'm a feminist or they just don't know what it means or whatever, and so you get into that conversation on a date. And, like, it's heavy stuff to talk about on a first date and defining every different version of feminism. Okay, so liberal, radical. Yeah, right? I'm like, I don't have time. Like Go to shoot. uni. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's no fun. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. Um, it's, it's so personal. I think for all of us, we're all kind of in the dating world, having our own every, you know, every week. We feel very personally attacked. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, I think we could all benefit from <laughs> venting and getting some laughter out of Totally, out of this. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it says in the description on the media release that you can even bring a Tinder date to the performance, which I think is hilarious. Oh, for sure. I'm going to go for my, you know, go for the right audience. Um, yeah, I, I, if someone took me to a show, any show on a first date, a thousand points. <laughs> like, if we're not going for coffee or to a bar, you've already been so inventive mm. That I'm in for a second day, no matter how badly it goes. Mm. Life drawing, baby. Life drawing. You got taken on life drawing? I did, I did. My most memorable Tinder date was a life drawing. And the model was eight months pregnant. It was the most beautiful, yeah. It was great. Did you kind of just want to be there by yourself or like with one of your best friends? No, it was nice. There was like lots of enforced gaps in conversation because you have to be silent in the class. (laughs) So even if he'd been a dud, it still would have been a good date. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Can you hear that? Most memorable Tinder date ever. For everyone. Yeah. Just for you, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) We've all heard about it. We'll take that. (laughs) Anya's fired. (laughs) 
is available. How can people get tickets? How can they come and see the show? So if you go to the Butterfly Club website and search Insanity, then you will see my face, <laughs> which we're on radio, so you don't know what that looks like. Uh, but yes, so you can get tickets through there. Otherwise, on my Facebook page, which is Isabel Yates, uh, it's an actor page. There are links all through there as well. Awesome. Yeah. So cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with Thank us Thank you today. for having me. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great. Really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. Um, Coming up next, um, I'm going to be playing a Tamil song, um, which I'm very excited about. Uh, This song came out in 2012, 2013. Um, It's one of my favorite songs ever. It's about love and yearning and romance and, yeah, I hope you like it. Welcome back. That's um, that was the song. It's called Ninjukula. It means in your heart. Oh. <laughs> it's one of my favorite, favorite songs. 
That's listening so to beautiful. Oh. Mm. And a nice <laughs> antidote to that awful, like, Tinder is so trash yeah. conversation. Yeah. I felt personally dragged. <laughs> yeah. It hit us all. In all honesty. Um, We're all looking at ourselves differently. <laughs> uh, and in case anyone forgot, you're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. Yeah, you are. Hey. So we were about to have an interview with... Um, a Isabel Morphy Walsh, who is the Senior Query Programs Officer at Museums Victoria. For people who tuned in because of that interview, I apologise. It's not going ahead um, today anymore. Um, but hopefully she will be joining us next week to talk about Museums Victoria's NAIDOC Week programming, including their exhibition for the theme Because of Her We Can and the Aboriginal Women and Their Legacies Being Honoured. So um, we will hopefully be able to reschedule that. Mm. Yes. So... I've just got a couple of community announcements that I wanted to share. The first few are um, for NADOC week. The first one is the March, so that's on Friday from 9 to 2 p.m. Um, and I think they're meeting at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service and then walking from there. So a good thing to go and go and um, participate in if you if you have time off. The next is it's called Bagarook, which means woman. It is this Friday at the Northcote Social Club from 8pm. Um, and for this uh, NADOC theme, Because of Her We Can, um, which focuses on Indigenous women and the role women play in society and mm-hmm. how important they are. And so this is a one-night-only event celebrating t- the talent of women. So there will be some great emerging female poets, musicians and artists performing. And the next, I just saw this just while that song was playing and thought it would be cool to share as well. It's on the 5th of July, which is Thursday, from 6.30pm. It's uh, Vic Nadoc Pride Crowning uh, at the Copacabana in Fitzroy. Um, So it's a, it looks, it's a catwalk event. (laughs) It sounds awesome. Oh my god. So yeah, a pride catwalk, so for the LGBTIQA plus community oh that's cool. good let's go yeah. yeah what are you doing thursday night uh, well i'm going to the show yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> um next up uh at the footscray community arts center on the 13th of july there's an ableism and access event um and it's called generate 2018 so that sounds really interesting mm. um and i've got two more events on July 6th, Mama Alto. Do you know Mama Alto? Mm-hmm. She's yeah. Not, yeah. Um, she's awesome. She's playing a gig at Hairs and Hyenas. Cool. Which is such a good... So for those... Who, oh, is that advertising? A good event, a place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's not an ad. <laughs> Sorry. Along Johnson um, Street, maybe. <laughs> we don't know maybe. where it is. <laughs> um, that's at Friday <laughs> at 8 p.m. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think it's okay. I don't think... I, yeah. I think it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the last event is on the 7th of July. It's called Politics and Protest, a National Conference. It's hosted by the Australian Refugee Action Mm. Network. It's being held in the city. So it will gather um, activists and advocates from across Australia to discuss the political context and campaign priorities, share ideas and explore strategies for networking across activist and advocacy groups to strengthen the campaign effort. There is so much going on in Melbourne, Mm. as always. Yeah, always. Um, Shall we get into a little bit of... uh Some folks know about it, some don't.
short and sweet this morning. Oh, sorry, we're on a, we're on the crunch. On the crunch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, time crunch. <laughs> we are on a time crunch. So, what are we talking about today? So, I just wanted to talk about something that really is an alternative news. It should be mainstream news mm. um, about the fact that um, I think about two weeks ago uh, there was some. The news article came out about how the number of children in Northern Territory juvenile detention centres who are indigenous um, is now a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I had a, a bit of a, a teary day at work when I saw the article because, I mean, it's it's incredibly, I think, personal for me as well, and and you, LB, um, because we work and continue to work with survivors of institutional abuse. Mm -hmm. So kids who were, in my opinion, arbitrarily and unnecessarily criminalized and and incarcerated and institutionalized. And, you know, we work with these people who whose whole life trajectories have changed because of, of that period of institutionalization. And we see firsthand how it it messes up people. Mm. And to know that, you know, there's been a royal commission around this, there's so much noise around it, and we still continue to do that. And we do that to a particular group of children who already have all these, you know, problems that we should be addressing instead. Mm. Um, and that it's still happening is just so infuriating. And, you know, what we should be doing is addressing the the underlying issues that lead to to this criminality, which, which is not just not a word that I really like, but you, you know mm. what I mean. We're talking, you know, homelessness, poverty, intergenerational trauma, family violence. These are things that we should be working towards. Instead, of course, it's easier to throw these kids into jail and, you know, just throw away the keys and, and keep them locked up. And it's just, it's just so, so infuriating. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to rant And about. so there were a few recommendations in that article. Hey, it was talking about how they should yes. raise the age to yeah, 15? from 10 to 14 or 15, yeah, which is 10. already happening. Yeah, from yeah, yeah. What were you doing at 10 years old? Who who is responsible yeah. for your actions at 10 years exactly. old? Exactly. This is something that can happen so quickly and I hope it does. I think Thursday breakfast talked about it last week. Um, but also even other things like um, you know, therapeutic justice measures, so diversion to young offenders yes, yeah. um, at an early age. And um, there's just so many other things. Look, I'm just going to take out the report that I that I brought with me today about some of the therapeutic jurisprudence and rehabilitation measures that, that you know, can be done. The Victorian government's 2017 Youth Justice Review and Strategy notes that once in contact with Victoria's youth justice system, this is Victoria-specific, but I think it's it's a lesson that is applicable everywhere, that the life out- outcomes of young people are poor and there's no change in their offending patterns. So obviously criminalizing them and being tough on crime doesn't change anything. And, you know, if you're trying to keep the community safe, it doesn't work. So it doesn't change anything and it makes their life worse as well. Pretty much. So that, like... 
there's just no reason to keep doing that. Mm. Yeah. What you can do, you can do, um, you can do appropriate referrals to support programs, for example, um, to address the issues that underlie this sort of criminal behaviour. You can prov- provide avenues for appropriate reparation to victims. You can make the experience that young people have within ju- within the justice system a more therapeutic and ultimately beneficial one. And if we were to talk about it from an economic point of view, it also makes sense to to use this money that we spend on locking kids up on better um, programs yeah. that help them and the community as a whole. Mm. Um, I've also got another another statistic for you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the Victorian government's Youth Justice Review and Strategy released in July 2017 notes that the majority, 58% of expenditure on youth justice services is focused on custodial supervision, while only 3% is allocated to court-based diversion and restorative justice including the Children's Court Pre-Plea Diversion Program and Youth Justice Group Conferencing. Basically, they're spending more money just locking kids up instead of actually helping them get out of that um, of that zone, basically. Mm. And it's, it's not right. Kids do not belong in prison. Yeah. But so if there is economic and social, um, massive economic and social arguments to not do it, and we see 100% of... Um, 100% of the kids in this situation are Aboriginal. It seems like the only logical conclusion we can draw is that this is structural racism. Absolutely. Massive. 100% is the statistic for Northern Territory, but it's just as high in every other state. Mm. And we we just need to do better. Yeah. Mm. And it's not just me. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in this field, but there's so much research around this issue we need to look at that. We need to listen to the communities that are mm. being targeted about mm. how to help the children. Mm. It's just so much easier to put them in jail. Yeah. And I, I don't think you, you're not an expert. None of us in this room are experts in the field. But it's also this is an entire this is every single person that lives in Australia, Aboriginal person or settler. It doesn't matter. This is this is our problem mm. because this is too, too big to ignore. Mm. Mm. And kids who start in the justice system or in prisons at such an early age, you know, might go on to re-offend and and grow up to be, you know, offenders in the future as well. So what are we really doing to stop crime if that's what the the aim is? Yeah, Mm. absolutely. And I think the other recommendation from that article was that, you know, there shouldn't, people shouldn't go to jail for really petty, insignificant Mm -hmm. crimes Mm. because of what you've just said Mm. about how people then become institutionalised and how it's of recidivism. You know, it's just so unproductive. Yeah. Yeah. There's this tweet that's floating around, I don't know, um, it's something like fines are justice for rich people. Um, Mm. And so, you know, the flip side of that is that we see, and and people like Miss Do. Um, we see people who are jailed and horrific things happen to them because of these, not even a, like, what is a fine? That is not a crime, yeah. an unpaid fine. Come on. Yeah. But yeah, you're yeah. right. It's, it's this non-offending that's being criminalized. Mm. Yeah. And you often hear that about, um, and coming back to the fact that Indigenous people are targeted, mm. when there is that fine, then there, if you can't pay it off, then the only way to pay it off is to go to prison and then like that is to me that just doesn't make any sense Mm. like that that's the only option and that and of course it means Mm. that only wealthy people can afford yeah the fear and the mistrust of the system absolutely warranted i would say Mm. you know that also plays a huge role into into these issues yeah anyway there's this great article that's um 
it's an SBS article, I'm pretty sure, about it's titled Why Why Are So Many Indigenous Kids in Detention in the Northern Territory in the First Place? It's on our Facebook page, but it's would highly recommend. Talks a lot about the sort of legislation that's contributing to this problem and how we can help to change that. So to our listeners, we have to do better. Get yeah. angry about this. And on that note, um, there's a great article floating around that says that the tipping point for change in societies is 25%. If 25% of people agree mm-hmm. with you, you can tip change in your favour. Really? So don't stop talking about this issue, don't stop being angry, and don't stop standing up for these kids because they really need it. Mm. We'll be right back. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. And we're back at Tuesday Brecky. We've got Kate Ford on the line who is the General Manager of Queer Space. Now, Queerspace, we've got a regular slot with them now once a month, so this is our second um, interview. Uh, for, for those of you who are listening who didn't hear our first one and don't know much about Queerspace, it's a health and wellbeing service for LGBTIQ plus people and the people they're in relationship with. And so as part of its role in supporting the health of queer communities, they made a film, uh, it's, uh, it's called More Complex Than Yes?, which brings together some community voices just after the survey results are announced. So we're going to discuss that today with Kate. So hi, Kate. How are you going? Hi. Yeah, good. How are you? Thanks. I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. No problem. <laughs> so can you give our listeners, I know I did give a brief intro, but um, perhaps mention a little bit more about what Queer Space is and the work that you do there. Sure, yeah. So we're a health and wellbeing service, so that kind of runs the gamut from basically infancy to old age, so we see people at any age range. And we provide mental health services, also counselling for people in relationships, for um, families, including families who have gender-diverse um, children. We run a group for parents of gender-diverse children, um, which which um, sort of coincides with their individual counselling often. Um, so we provide a range of um, supports, including accommodation to other um, queer community orgs, um, and we run a range of groups, and we do things like make films when we think it's important to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds like a really broad service that you provide. Yeah, yeah, and it's deliberately broad because it's a public health model of health, so we know that the social determinants of health mean that we have to consider um, not just individual well-being and family well-being, but also the effects of all that stuff that happens in politics and in the in mm. the wider communities as a kind of determinant of people's um, health and well <clears throat> excuse me health and well-being. So connectedness is one of them, but also um, get, um, finding ways to help people um, process what's happening in the world is. Um, we, you know, we see that as a really important part of our contribution to um, to queer health in its in its broadest sort of sense. 
Yeah, and this is just so relevant in terms of the marriage equality <coughs> campaign. Uh, and we were hearing um, that a lot of support services were experiencing quite high levels of demand. And at Queer Space, was that the case? And what, what have you found to be the impacts in the months following on from that? Yeah, so the, the demand was quite um, shocking. It, um, and I think the frontline services really, really struggled with this sudden increase in calls, but also... Not, it wasn't just volume, it was also the level of risk associated with the people who were calling. So the effects of all of those things that were said in public were that people um, in, in our communities were really, really struggling to just kind of maintain um, a basic sense of, you know, a right to be in the world. And if they were going through things like, you know, difficulty coming out or, or any kinds of things that um, meant that they were struggling with being queer in the world, then... The, the kinds of things that were being said in public were just tipping people into, uh, you know, that, oh, God, I need to talk to someone, um, otherwise I'm kind of, you know, not feeling like I'm going to cope. So that was the frontline services. But what we also experienced at Queer Space was um, we had a lot of those frontline services also approaching us, saying that the staff needed help because everybody's, you know, pretty much queer-identified or an ally, so people have, you know, complex relationships in queer community and and people are really struggling with the... It, it's sort of like being um, sub, submerged in this filth. <laughs> and, yeah. and and how do you cope with that? So we did a lot of um, trying to put in support, not just for um, our clients who were coming in, but for, for the people who were working in the frontline services and our own staff and the people who are co-located with us at Drummond Street. So it was a very intense time for for all of us queer space staff who are also all queer identified. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and totally. Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense that, you know, these bigger political discourses can have this impact, especially when you're talking about mm. a certain group's access to equal rights. And in the in this film, so... Um, it's called It's More Complex Than Yes. I watched it last night. It's, it's really fantastic. Um, right. There was one um, comment that really moved me in particular where they were talking about, um, it might have been Sally Goldner, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, who is one of our heroes here at Tuesday Breakfast, <laughs> mentioned that people felt shamed. Yeah. And yeah. that, you know, that is just such an awful thing to experience in, in terms of that discrimination and that stigmatization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that, it's it's hard to speak about and it's hard to, uh, you know, which is why we see people at Queer Space individually often is to work through the effects of that shame because it's so profound when it comes with the weight of um, public opinion. And I think that was what was really distinctive about the way the postal survey was run was that, um, you know, I mean, just to say the obvious in a way is that, you know, we were all discussed in public all the time in ways that um, we couldn't control. And so, you know, it would suddenly enter, you know, your living room or your car or, you know, sitting there with your kids and suddenly somebody would be speaking about um, uh, gay parents more likely to be addicted to drugs or whatever. These random ideas that just drop in. And that, um, the effect of that on the already uh, internalised uh, homophobia, transphobia, etc., um, is is really a compounding effect. And I actually watched last night Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. Oh, that is fantastic. She speaks so yeah. eloquently about the effects of the um, so-called debate in Tasmania around the criminalisation yeah. of homosexuality and the effects on her growing up. And that's the kind of order of things that we're speaking about. You know, and 
how do you intervene in that? You have to have ways of speaking back to the culture. And she did it so eloquently. Um, speaking back about, not just about, oh, this is affecting my individual mental health, but this is a public health issue. It's something that we have to say, you know, no, we're not going to just say, oh, you know, gay people, lesbian people, trans people experience higher rates of mental health issues. We're going to say that the causes of that have to be put back to the culture, have to be put back to our political processes. And that's why we see our work in health as as intervening in those kinds of um, public debates as well. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um yeah, that re- that there was an- another point that was made at the end of uh, that video about healing mm. and speaking and allowing mm. LGBTIQA plus communities to do that in in the wake of this kind of very uh, toxic uh, public discourse that mm. we've been experiencing. There's so much yeah. that I want to ask you about, and I think we're going to have to wrap up there. But um, what is the well, best? It's okay, we've got a regular spot. Exactly. We can talk about it again. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Um, but for any of our LGBTIQA uh, plus listeners, um, mm-hmm. what is the best way for them to get in contact? Well, you can go to the Drummond Street Services website. So you just Google Drummond Street Services and you'll be able to click on that and then you'll be able to click on Queer Space within that. Um, or you can phone Drummond Street directly on 9663-6733. Um, so either of those will get you um, someone to uh, either talk to or to phone you back. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. No trouble. Thanks very much. Bye. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. We've had a ridiculously good show so far, and we're just going to wrap it up with one final interview. Um, I'm very excited about about this interview. We have Kelly Felgen, who is the Community Engagement Manager um, from JIRA, which was formerly known as the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention um, and Legal Service. Um, We're just waiting for her to join us anytime soon. but in the meantime, mm. so what kind of work do Jira do? They do quite quite a number of things. Um, they obviously do the Aboriginal Family Violence Legal Service. They also um, do cultural and well-being workshops. They do some policy and advocacy work um, mm-hmm. 
the community, and they have a couple of um, offices everywhere in Victoria, I think. Um, the one closest to us is in Abbotsford, mm-hmm. um, but they have offices in Mildura and and elsewhere, um, and their board is amazing. They've, um, they've got really awesome people on the board, and their CEO, um, Antoinette Braybrook, um, is also great. Oh, I think um, Kelly is joining us now. Hi, Kelly. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you going? Good, thank you. Good morning to you all. <laughs> Good morning to you too. Um, let's, let's jump in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about JIRA and the types of services you provide? Sure. So, as you mentioned, we're an Aboriginal community-controlled organisation and we do have statewide reach. Uh, we were established 15 years ago now, um, which in some sense sounds like a long time, but it's not really. Uh, we're a specialist service that provides frontline legal and non-legal services for Aboriginal uh, victims and survivors of family violence. Mm-hmm. We also deliver primary prevention and early intervention programs, mm-hmm. including wellbeing workshops. Uh, for women that reduce vulnerability to family violence and break down barriers to reporting. Mm. And as you mentioned earlier, too, we also do policy and advocacy work to address systemic issues and advocate change mm. um, to support Aboriginal women's access to justice, safety and equality. Yeah. Um, certainly while our frontline services are not gender exclusive, 95% of our clients are women. Mm-hmm. And in recognition of this, all of our early intervention and prevention work is designed by Aboriginal women for mm. Aboriginal Amazing. Um, can you take us through Jira's journey a little bit? When and how did the organisation come about? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, okay, so we're established in 2002, which is was 15 years ago, and mm. we were established as the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service, mm. and we were one of 14 FDPLSs around Australia. Mm. Uh, we were established because of the high rates of violence against Aboriginal people, and predominantly women mm. and their children. Mm. And um, certainly because of the lack of access to culturally safe services for Aboriginal victims and survivors. Um, earlier this year, uh, you might know we celebrated our 15-year anniversary mm. and had a wonderful um, gala in town. Yep. And at that event, we launched our new name and identity as Jura. Yep. Uh, but just so you know, Jura is a warrior word uh, for read. Mm-hmm. And it certainly has great cultural significance for our organisation. Um, in Wurundjeri culture, weaving was a time when Aboriginal women came together, we shared stories, we gave each other support and worked together to find solutions mm-hmm. um, to any of the issues that we were facing. And certainly this is a vision we have for Jira. So Jira is a place where our women can feel safe, mm-hmm. celebrated and supported. That's and we're beautiful. really excited about our journey to Jira and where that's going to take us in the future. Mm, that's amazing. Um, and in your experience, Kelly, can you talk a little bit about why culturally appropriate services in the family violence space is so important? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, certainly our, our sisters experience violence at a far higher rate than mm-hmm. non-Aboriginal sisters. And in Victoria, our women are 25 times more likely to be killed or hospitalised because of family violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet for our women experience violence, there are certainly many complex barriers to reporting that violence and accessing support. Um, so organisations like JIRA are best placed to build trust and mm-hmm. break down those barriers for women seeking support. And we work really hard to do that. 
um, with the history of colonisation and contemporary racism and discrimination mm. means that our sisters experience family violence have a great deal of fear and mm. mistrust of the system. Mm. Um, many of the, the women that we work with tell us about poor responses from police um, who judge or belittle their experiences mm. um, and sometimes just don't believe them. Yeah. Uh, also, many of our women that we work with have lived through the stolen generation or they've certainly been touched by it, either through their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunties, mm. and they're terrified that if they report that violence, um, their children will be removed. And this is a real fear mm. for our women. And it's um, still it's happening. in the past. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. As you know, children are 14 times, our children are 14 times more likely to be removed than mm. other children. Mm. And family violence is the single biggest driver of this. Um, which forces our children into out-of-home care mm. and then, you know, losing their connection to family, community, culture and identity. So we certainly um, advocate for change to the child protection, justice and family violence mm. system so that our women um, are supported to live safely and, most importantly, keep their children in their care. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, Kelly, are there any events coming up that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Uh, yep, there sure is. Uh, we've got a, a special Sisters Day Out coming up on the 17th of July. It's our NAIDOC um, mm-hmm. Sisters Day Out, and it certainly marks the national NAIDOC theme because of how we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also an opportunity for us to launch a new and exciting campaign which honours the women that we work with who often go unseen and unheard, mm-hmm. some by choice and some uh, certainly because of violence, racism and discrimination. Mm-hmm. So uh, at this NAIDOC, and actually every day, we celebrate all women at GIA, um, not mm-hmm. only those in the spotlight, particularly those in the shadows as well. Yeah. So keep an eye um, out for the 17th. There'll be lots of exciting things coming up for our community and the broader public over social media too. So it's a really, um, it's a really powerful campaign actually, and I'm so excited about launching that at this day out, which will be held yep. at the Regal Ballroom in High Street, Northcote. Beautiful. I did see that on Facebook, so we'll share those details on our page as well. Um, and finally, yes, um, okay. how do people get in contact with you? Okay, so we have a 1800 number. That's probably the first point of call. So it's 1800 105 303. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can uh, log on to the website and uh, contact us that way by email as well. As you mentioned uh, at, in uh, the introduction, our head office is in Abbotsford, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have regional offices in Mildura, Warnable and Bansdale, and soon to have uh, offices in Ballarat, Bendigo, Echuca and Morewell, so mm-hmm. that's exciting too. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some, actually, might give a plug for some job opportunities in yeah. those towns if anyone's listening. <laughs> Um, jump onto our website and have a look. We're really excited to get those offices up and running, be able to support women in those communities as well. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you. That's okay. Thanks for calling and thanks for your interest. Um, yeah, just keep join our Sisters Day Out page too. You can on Facebook as well. We will. We certainly will. About yeah. what we do in our early Thanks, Thank you. And that is just about all we have time for on Tuesday Breakfast for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, keep an eye out. Hopefully our podcast will be coming back 
with yes, a bit more we'll regularity. Today. Mm. Oh, yes. that's a promise. Um, and thank you to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and thank you to all of our guests. Great. Yeah, we'll we'll Such chuck all that information people. on yeah. the Facebook page um, because we kind of have to run. But <laughs> thank you for tuning in. See you next week. <laughs>